But, you know, I'm not scared of intensity. I just, I'm just not quite sure where it goes. That's the trouble. <laughs> I don't know, you know, what the lasting impact is because I think, of course, you know it's not real that this is your job. And yet I think if you're doing it well, you are tricking your mind and your body produces all the attendant cocktail of adrenaline or cortisol. And so some, somewhere on a physiological level, it's real, isn't it? I'm Tina Brown, and you're listening to TBD. My guest today has played a Bond girl and a Gone girl, and in her most recent film role, Rosamund Pike plays a woman in full, the fearless foreign correspondent Marie Colvin, who was as comfortable sipping martinis in London as she was facing down dictators and reporting as bombs fell around her. Colvin's family filed suit against the Assad regime, saying Marie was deliberately killed in Homs, Syria in 2012 to silence her. And now an American judge has ruled in favor of the family, setting a hugely important precedent in holding the Assad regime accountable. Rosamund Pike began acting as a teenager and continued while attending Oxford. More than 10 years after she was a Bond girl, Pike broke through with her chilling performance as the cunning, sexy psychopath Amy Dunn in Gone Girl. Pike can next be seen in the Stephen Frears Sundance TV series about a couple in marriage therapy, written by Nick Hornby. And in her next film, Pike plays another Marie, the Nobel Prize-winning scientist Marie Curie in Radioactive, which is why I'm wearing a lead-lined flak jacket as I welcome my guest today. Do you ever wonder where all your money went, like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Hi, Rosamond. How's London? Uh, well, London is good and, and chilly. Well, I can't really believe that it's three months since you were with us at Women in the World in Toronto at the very start of this great odyssey to, you know, launch a private war on the world. And you've had some incredible reviews in the last few months. Yes, I'm afraid I'm, uh, I don't read any reviews because I, I suppose I feel that negative stuff can obsess you, but positive stuff, I fear it might mean I can't do it again. <laughs> I, I steer well clear. But nonetheless, you know, I'm pleased to hear of, you know, the deluge of good stuff, even if I'm just standing in the puddle. Our British audience is responding to the film in a different way than you think American audiences have, you know, because they were more familiar with Marie Colvin's reporting and her words and her reputation. Actually, I think there's a kind of general feeling in people who see this film, and it's it's a look in people's eyes that I've now come to recognise. Um, I now know who's seen it and who hasn't. There's something haunted in their eyes after they see it. And it's I think it's to do with the way Matthew made the film, the subject matter, and a, a window onto a world that people 
I suppose, for much of their lives, tried to shut out, let's be honest. That's Matthew Heinemann, who is the young director, who, of course, was a documentary director before he tackled this topic, which is all the more remarkable that he did so well with a feature film. Um, Exactly. And I think he brought to bear the instinct for the real truth. You know, there's a lot of talk about truth and striving for the truth in every business, but particularly mine. And um, and I think, Matt, he really did achieve something remarkable by virtue of getting most of the background of our film cast with people who weren't actors, but for whom the events we were depicting were their lived realities. And I think People participate in film for many reasons. You know, anyone who does background work, they usually do it for the money, they do it for some social life, they do it for, you know, an interesting change of scene. And I think probably much was true of the people who wanted to be in our film in Jordan. I think what they weren't anticipating was the level of reality that can be created by a film and how it would bring them back to to something of, of their own experience trauma and fears and I think so what you have in the film is people caught on camera who are reliving stuff in a very very genuine way and and that's what's speaking to the audiences who see it and I think that's what gives people that haunted look because what they're seeing is is the kind of grief that we're not usually meant to see or we're not privileged to see. Yeah, it, it, it's incredibly moving, the scene with the refugees that you shot and the, the extras in the scene with the mass graves in, in Iraq. You know, you, you, you felt that this was something that was so real. It was based, of course, The Private War, on a remarkable Vanity Fair article by Marie Brenner. And I want to play a clip in which uh, Marie Colvin refused to leave Homs in Syria despite intense bombing there and pleas from her loyal photographer who accompanied her Paul Conroy, who's played by the actor Jamie Dornan in the film. Stop. What are you doing? I gotta go back. There are 28,000 people there. We can't Listen abandon... Listen to me! You're brilliant. I'm brave. And Buck, you've got an amazing nose for the story. But you don't have a military brain, all right? Hey, Let hey, me go. Hey, we will fucking die if we go back. Okay? We will fucking I gotta go back. die. Hugo. No. Save me a seat at the bar. Yeah, which bar? Where... Marie! Incredibly powerful moment. Um, When Marie returned to Homs, of course, she was killed hours after doing a live report on CNN. Do you think she understood the difference between bravery and bravado? Because to stay there in the midst of this incredible danger, you know, you just ask yourself, like, did she have a death wish? Why did she stay? I think she, she absolutely did not have a death wish. One thing that I got out of my head quite rapidly in the process was the idea that foreign correspondents are sort of adrenaline junkies. I think um, there is certainly the drug of adrenaline that courses through their veins, you know, frequently. I mean, there's also a lot of waiting around. But do they like being scared? No, not at all. I think Marie sort of loathed the fear that would possess her. Um, But she always felt that what she was doing was important enough that it was worth conquering. Um, a friend of hers just said, Syria, are you mad? You know, Homs is, is too dangerous, Marie. And she responded in an email. She just said, but it's so anger-making, it's worth it. Yeah. And I ended up carrying that around with me and writing it on the front of my script because I thought, you know, that's what's driving her because, you know, an anger as a creative energy can make a story and can get you further and can get you to the people who you need to talk to and um, can make you, you know, open yourself up to other people's plight, even in the face of your own fear. And I think, um, you know, did she cross her own red line going into Homs? Absolutely. 
Um, was there a competitive edge to her decision? Yes, there was. Um, you know, she knew that there was, at one point, she was the only Western journalist there. Then um, a French contingent turned up, and that was when she she said to Paul Conroy, what, you really want to go now that the Euro trash are here? <laughs> and, and, you know, that was, you know, classic Marie. The thing that also stunned me about her, though, was the way she was then able to sort of sit down with bombs falling around her and, and file flawless copy. I mean, the copy that she wrote, she was such a good writer. To me, getting through it would be bad enough, but to actually then compose your thoughts and write a cogent, you know, fully publishable piece shows that she had a sort of mental detachment too that was quite remarkable. You know, the final words we ever heard from her were the broadcast on CNN, which were spoken, you know, and Marie was, as you say, she she wrote for the Sunday Times of London. She she communicated through the written word. So it was unusual, really, that, you know, the thing that has sort of almost cemented her legacy in a way was this broadcast. It's a complete and utter lie that they are only going after terrorists. There are rockets, tank shells, anti-aircraft being fired in a parallel line into the city. The Syrian army is simply shelling a city of cold, starving civilians. Marie Colvin, um, I know it's impossible. We've all heard it. It was replayed and replayed. And, you know, that calm confidence calling Assad out as a liar and a murderer and calling lie to the idea that, you know, this was a military stronghold and the army were going after terrorist gangs. She was saying this is a city of the cold and the hungry. But when it came to playing that scene, thanks to, you know, Paul Conroy's debriefing, um, because he was with us on set the whole time, it really brought to light the fact that, you know, not only did she have this composure and was she making this kind of exacting examination of, of, of the situation, but the walls were literally crumbling as she spoke. You know, the bombs were coming, the, there was shell fire all around and the, the walls were shaking and, 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 and rubble was, you know, throwing dust in the air and debris. And of course, her, you know, her determination to expose the Assad regime for targeting civilians also got her targeted. It did, absolutely. There, there are stories, and according to witness reports, you know, there's now a strong argument that she was actually followed all the way from Beirut. And Paul, when he got out and escaped the blast that killed Marie, he told everyone, he said, this was not an accident. This was not a casualty in a dangerous place. This was a deliberate targeting of us by the army. And, you know, Paul has been arguing for that and making that point ever since 2012. And the incredible thing is that Marie's sister, Kat, who seems to have something of the tenacity and sort of sheer pluck, really, of her first sister, launched this lawsuit against the Syrian government, which everyone thought was a sort of quixotic kind of human rights gesture. But then, in fact, the, the court found in her favor, and you must have been elated when you heard that the Syrian government will be held legally accountable for Marie's death whatever that actually means in terms of compensation. The fact that the judgment came on the day that we were doing a big press junket in London, I mean, we could hardly believe it. So Jamie Dornan and I were in a hotel room in London when Paul Conroy came sort of literally almost staggering up the stairs from the dining room downstairs where he had just opened an email from the lawyer saying that this judgment had come through and was going to be announced that day. I mean, we were staggered because I think however much you hope that justice will be done or somebody will call it, you realise that, you know, your expectation is that they won't. Right. <laughs> and, you know, it was really moving. The judge also recognised Marie as the leading war correspondent of her generation. And that was very, very moving to read too, a sort of public 
certified acknowledgement of what she represented to people. But then also testimonies from deserters from Assad's army, people who had overheard her being picked out and people saying, you know, we have to kill the bitch. You know, it was it was categoric. This has also really happened at a time when journalism itself is under such attack in so many places. And I think perhaps one reason why the private war is such an extraordinarily resonant film now is because you you can't help but think all the way through it of so many of the other journalists who are being murdered all over the place and at a time when you know the news media is under constant onslaught from both criticized and and, and derided by by Trump and also because news bureaus are closing all over the world do you think anyone would hire Marie Colvin today I should certainly hope so um I mean, the stories that Marie wrote, they were unique in the way that they managed to bring conflicts that often feel very far away, very, very close. You know, she made you think of your sister, your mother, your child when you read her articles. And she got a lot of scoops, Um, too. She had scoops galore. Yes, she had a, a huge network of contacts. And, you know, for instance, with the mass grave that you referenced earlier, you know, that was a... A, a scoop she'd had on the situation of where Saddam had buried a whole load of Kuwaiti bodies and she turned up and she rented a digger. I mean, she rented like a large excavator, which is pretty hard to do in, in, in England. Goodness knows how one does it in um, Iraq. You know, she had to go through a military checkpoint with, um, you know, and try and pass herself off as a doctor uh, where there was a sort of gigantic digger following her car. Yeah, I know. I love the way she she flashed her gym card, which she pretended was her kind yeah, of in international our story, credential. Yeah, in, in our film. <laughs> <laughs> well, friends of Marie Colvin were actually stunned at how you did capture her posture, her voice, and the angle of her chin when she talked. You know, I've heard again and again. I didn't actually know Marie personally. I knew many friends of hers who did, though. And, you know, they all say she became Marie. It was just preternatural. How did you prepare for that role? How did you become Marie so extraordinarily convincingly? Well, thank you for that. Um, it was a labour of love, really. Um, you know, sometimes in a film, there's a there's a legitimate reason for an actor to sort of channel a real person through their own physique and physicality and, you know, give a sense of the person without it being, you know, an exact replica that you're going for. But in this case, I thought Marie was so fascinating, not just who she was, her personality, the kind of force of nature that she was, but but the way that her whole career and life and the, you know, the loss of her eye in 2001, you know, let's not forget that, you know, an injury that was you know, a huge disadvantage and after which many people would have given up that career. You know, she her body was really this this sort of living, breathing example of the impact that her career choice had had on her, on her life. And, and I thought that to, to get inside that body was far more interesting than, you know, allowing a sort of sense of Marie to inhabit mine. So I worked just very, very intensely watching every single piece of footage, trying to carry weight in the same places that she carried it, changing my voice, um, changing the way I used my face, the twitches and the the way she moved her mouth and... And of course, the way she smoked, that was an essential part of her, the way she used her hands. She kind of, you know, Marie was a combination of being very, very locked up in places and very, very free and dynamic. And she'd have these big hand gestures and kind of staccato movements. And it's what made her kind of so charismatic. You know, she walked across a room and everybody paid attention. It was... Yeah, she was immensely glamorous, actually. I mean, in her private Yes, and it was a glamour that we're not used to seeing on film. It was a glamour born of you know, passion, commitment, drive, ambition, sexiness, um, 
but it's a dirt it's a dirtier glamour than we're often used to seeing it's yeah. it's something born of of the pushing of oneself you know it's yeah. a glamour that comes out of that and it's it's because people feel awe in the face of it because most of us wouldn't have it you know most of us wouldn't do what she did <laughs> absolutely not it's the the intensity yeah, when you're in the the company of that you feel you know you want to sort of a bit of it to rub off on you don't you i think that the other thing that, about her story that people find obviously so compelling is that it's also a story about wrestling between such competing drives uh, between life and career i mean she chose a career that was dangerous in the extreme and really essentially destroyed any possibility of really a normal life and relationships she did not have children could not have children which was an extraordinarily painful thing to her and her relationships you know really ended in in disaster i think there is a loneliness and i think matt heinemann our director one of the things he wanted to explore you know born out of the title of the film a private war was you know what are the private battles that can ensue from a career like this and I think Marie had a tremendously maternal instinct. But, you know, in the reality, could she have done what she did with a small baby? I, I don't think she could. Marie stayed longer and went deeper than everybody else. And everybody, all the other correspondents acknowledge it. How much did you sort of think about that? Because you're also, you know, a woman who balances and juggles between a passion for her work and her intensity of her love of her career and being a mother to your two children. I mean, did you bring some of that to understanding Marie's conflict here? I think, you know, I think it is something that, that does obsess all mothers. You know, there's some basic, you know, fundamental un belief that I have, and I'm sure a lot of other working mothers do, that, you know, a child who grows up and sees that their mother has pursued her passion, you know, that's a very valuable life lesson, you know. But, you know, do I wonder, you know, I think I come home after a day's filming and I'm able just to get on the floor and play Lego I'm sure while I'm involved with the intensity of someone like Marie I'm sure there's a part of me that's not fully there I think it mm -hmm. actually takes weeks to come back I'm still you know feeling some of the effects because of course you know on many days filming in Jordan you know this was not acting this was this was completely blurring the lines of documentary drama real life um, I mean in so many cases I didn't know where we were you know I was just responding to a person telling me something traumatic you know a woman holding my hand looking into my eyes and saying you know I escaped our house when a car bomb went off I ran away with my three children I turned around and suddenly I realized that my youngest daughter wasn't there and I look at this woman and I said so was your other child under the rubble she said yes she was under the rubble and and at that point there are no cameras there you know, yes, right. we are being filmed. This is the film. I'm not myself. I'm Marie. But on another level, I'm a human talking to a human. Yeah. And you're responding deeply to something so tragic. That, yes, that, deeply. Yeah. You're mm. just taking it in. You're just being a sponge, which I think Marie was. You know, I think I was being, I mean, I was channeling it through Marie. And there was a shield between that and me. But nonetheless, on a purely soul level, you're soul punched by someone else's experience. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects, but there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few taps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects. And say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. 
Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Right. In, in your next film, you're going to play the scientist, Marie Curie, the first woman to win the Nobel Prize. So that's a, a very different role. But I would imagine what they would probably have in common would be intensity. Yes. Is that a very different kind of um, uh, woman to get in the head of? Um, well, I'm sure that they have a sort of twinning in my mind because uh, I played Marie Curie so closely after Marie Colvin. So I think in my in my head, they're quite intertwined. And yes, they have a, a drive and they have a, you know, Marie Curie was interesting because she didn't really have the need to be liked that Marie Colvin had. Marie Colvin wanted to be popular. You know, she wanted to, you know, entertain at a party. She was the life and soul you know, people gravitated towards her. She was a very loyal girlfriend. Marie Curie, it was sort of odd to her that anyone might want to be her friend. I mean, she she had colleagues and people who were interested in her brain, but but she wasn't really ever, you know, socialising just for the sake of it. There were always things to be done. She was busy. She was, you yeah. know, she was up against so much. What sort of private life did she have? Was she able to achieve a private life? Well, actually, she had the sort of dream, I think. She had the most wonderful love affair and seriously beautiful marriage with Pierre Curie. He understood her. He understood her oddity. You know, he'd grown up in a family that was sort of, um, you know, very kind of slightly bohemian parents for the Paris at that time. And Pierre Curie was a sort of wonderful, whole, abundant man who had sort of great generosity of spirit as well as cleverness. And and he really contained sort of Marie's eccentricity and and her brilliance. And together they discovered radioactivity. So, you know, not only did they have a great love affair, but they also made this child of radioactivity together, which for me is always the dream, you know, to... Yeah, it's remarkable. You know, I, think, I think Marie uh, Colvin thought she might find that, you know, the perfect sympathetic colleague who's also your lover. But then tragically, Marie Curie's husband was killed when he was 38 in a road accident. And so she went from having it all to having absolutely nothing. And she never recovered from that, ever. And then she scandalised France by her affairs. She had an affair with a married man, which was perfectly acceptable in France at that time. However, not if you were a famous woman. This project, the Marie Curie project and, you know, Private War, these are both really great projects. It's difficult, I know, to find this kind of material. And in fact, a lot of actresses, you know... <laughs> That's why I'm not working, Tina. <laughs> so so how do you hunt out this material? I mean, what do you get shown and what are you, what, what are you asking for when you're saying, Look, bring me this kind of role? I'm asking for things that are provocative. You know, I do want to make people think and see things differently. Um, but then, you know, after, after those two, I did do a comedy written by my dear friend Nick Hornby which was just sort of 10 delicious short excerpts about a couple who um, who meet in a pub each week before their marital therapy session. And hmm. all you see is that the time it takes for them to have a pint and a glass of wine in a pub opposite their therapist's office. And you just chart the trajectory of this relationship. She's had an affair. 
And this is this is State of the Union that you're, you've done for Sundance It's called State Channel. of the Union, yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's directed by Stephen Frears. I mean, that's a pretty great combination, Frears and Hornby and you and... Chris O'Dowd is the actor. Yeah, um, yeah and, it, and it was, you know, they're just 10 minutes, each one. So in a way, each episode is like the one great dialogue scene that you sometimes get in a movie where you just think, oh, that writer got to really write there and, you know, the actor's got to play. And there's usually only a couple of really good long dialogue scenes in, in any movie these days. And and this was like having 10 of those, <laughs> you know, the wit of two people who know each other, still find each other funny have so many problems. Well, it must have been a wonderful um, sorbet course, I would think, after all the intensity of these other projects, frankly, to yes, do Yes, it was. Like it was. I needed it, actually. I needed to... But, you know, I'm not scared of intensity. I just, I'm just not quite sure where it goes. That's the trouble. <laughs> I don't know, you know, what the lasting impact is because I think, you know, of course you know it's not real that this is your job. And yet I think if you're, you know, if you're doing it well... You are tricking your mind and your body produces all the attendant cocktail of whatever the hormones and whether it's adrenaline or cortisol or, you know, the mad rush of falling in love, the heartbreak, the grief, whatever these the cocktail of stuff you're asking your body to feel, your body feels it. You know, you sweat, your heart beats faster, you get butterflies. And so some somewhere on a physiological level... It's real, isn't it? No, oh, it it absolutely is. Well, you you've chosen to live in London and stay there. Why do you love living in London rather than move? You could argue, you know, where more parts are, which is L.A. <laughs> um, I guess it stops my brain from you know there are fewer people to sort of compare yourself with in London. You know, I I, I always remember when I was in my early twenties going on the tube and seeing someone had graffitied over one of the kind of posters. They just graffitied, do not compare yourself to others for you will become either vain or bitter. And I never <laughs> forgot it. And I thought, that's it. And I thought, if I live in LA, I will become vain and bitter. <laughs> so, But I can also give my children the upbringing that I had. You know, I, I think that with all my delving into other bodies and... Um, oh, I'm so sorry, Tina, that might be my children coming home. Um, I might just have to ask them to be quiet. Can we just stop for a second and I'll just yes. tell them I'm doing this. Sure. Hold on, and I'll come back to that. Hold on. So there I just got a slice. You of, got a slice of... A slice of everything we're talking about. <laughs> yes, exactly. I love it. Um, so the other thing is, um, I was saying about living in London, is is being able to give my children the London that, that I experienced growing up. Um, and, and I think, you know, when you spend so much of your time getting further and further away from yourself, um, some form of continuity, you know, that means that if I go and feed the squirrels in... Hyde Park with uh, with my boys, then that's exactly what I was doing with my mother, age six. You recently turned forty, uh, Rosamond, which I, you know, I'm, I'm only bringing up because age is such a huge topic in the, in the U.S. And, and you know, you've you've done your best work really in the last kind of couple of years. Uh, I hope I hope so. You know, the only thing I ever ask about age is the only thing I really care about is whether people will believe me at the age I'm trying to be in the film. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an inter- it's certainly a good place for me at the moment because I keep being asked to play roles where I get to um, age down and up so for Marie Curie I play her from about 26 to you know in her 60s when she died and that's you know and that's a huge sort of that's hugely liberating because I'm of course at this point I'm still very much in touch with what it feels like to be 26 I mean I'm you know I feel like I'm (laughs) just 22 but with 18 more years experience Mm -hmm. you know Um, (laughs) 
How big of an issue has has pay equity been for you as an actress? I mean, do you do you feel that you've been paid in the same way that your male counterparts have? Has that been an issue for you? Well, you, you know, I mean, there's always the sort of you know the the thing that slips out of an agent's mouth, like with something like a private war, saying you know. Uh, when Jamie Dornan's cast, you know, well, he won't be earning more than you. And you think, well, damn right. You know, I, I'm the, you know, I'm in 100% of the scenes. He's in, you know, 60% of the scenes or whatever. But the fact that that's sort of a consideration or that that might be, a, it didn't it didn't occur to me that that might be the norm, maybe, that, you know, the female lead is still paid less than the male supporting co-star you know mm. you know one of the things that my partner's very good at is is saying you know what value do you place on your time because you know I think if you're if you're an actress and you've you know I grew up with my parents were singers you know jobs were hard to come by you know one is grateful for a job and it, it's often hard to dislodge that feeling of being grateful you know and the feeling of being grateful doesn't go very well with asking to be <laughs> well paid <laughs> you know do you think that you know you're both your parents being opera singers that was a life really where performance was part of your life all the time was that the, the real shaper of your professional love do you think yes performance was part of life you know intense conversations about words about meaning about emotion and you know money and and what value you can place on that kind of work it, I mean it's so hard to say isn't it because you know that the true happiness comes from doing the work. <laughs> that actually makes artists quite vulnerable to, to being exploited because they love their work yes. so much that they're willing to take less because they just love the work, which is something that uh, I, think I think that's true happens again and again. So now you're playing all these interesting women who are in their own way. They have uh, sort of defied conventions and they've been outstanding in their own way. You're looking around you at sort of London today, contemporary life today. I mean, if you if you were cast as Theresa May, how would you play her? <laughs> Gosh, that would be a great... I mean, it would be very interesting. What a good question, Tina. I mean, I'd be really... It would be a great challenge, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, I mean would, what do you um, see in Theresa May? I mean, you're, you know, you're a student of interesting women trying to grapple with power. I mean, how would you go about that, do you think? Well, I'd have to go... I'd have to start from the personal outwards. You know, I'd want to know... You know, the first questions I'd want to ask is, what does she say to her husband when she goes home? You know, what is the scene at home? You know, what is the... Is it confident or is it despair? I need to know what's going on behind the doors. You know, is there... You know, does she cry? I want to know all those things to start mm. with. Yes. You know, you can deal with the public face, but I think... You know, I think it was, she'd be an amazing person to play. I think, yes. you know, what you know, what is the truth? What does she really feel? What she's been dealt, the cards that she's been dealt, how she's handled them. I think it would be hugely revealing for the country to see something about Theresa May, much in the same way as they see, you know, the crown. You know, look what the crown has done for people understanding, you know, the role of monarchy. Not so much of sort of understanding the debate about whether or not we want to have a monarchy, but understanding what it means for the person who is the monarch. Yeah. You know, what it means to carry that and the expectation and, and the duty and, and the, you know, the idea that you are above feeling and opinion and that being, you know, what the role consists of. Well, just talking to you makes me think that you are actually exactly the right person to be playing her. And I and, and I can well, see... I've never thought about it. We'll have to, I have to start. Well, let's say we, we gave birth to a project on this podcast. Okay. I think we did, Rosamond. So thank yeah. you so much for, for joining us. Thanks so much. Okay.
You've been listening to TBD with me, Tina Brown, brought to you by Wondery. You can subscribe to TBD on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep up with us however you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard today, please spread the word, tweet about it, Instagram it, or, you know, try having an actual conversation with a real person. TBD is produced by Tina Brown, Kathleen Russo, Julie Subrin, Karen Compton, Justin Janino, and Michael Solomon. Original theme music is composed by Forrest Gray. Want to hear more stories of swashbuckling journalism? Download my TBD interview with rock star philosopher and provocateur Bernard-Henri Lévy. Come back next time for more smart people on TBD. TBD.